look, the interest rates are most likely going to stay low for a, certainly a reasonable period of time. Again, I, I don't think I'd jump into either buying a practice or a house just because interest rates are, are low. So it's the other factors. Both of those are going to be amongst the largest purchases you're going to make in your life. So you're going to have to pay back the principal in any case. So you might as well do it at the time that's suitable for you. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. This is episode three of a four-part financial mini-series brought to you by my good friends at Credible. If you have missed episode one and two, be sure to check them out. We cover a lot of topics, including good debt versus bad debt, and whether or not you should open a practice from scratch or purchase an existing practice. So if you're interested in those topics, if you're a new dentist and want to learn more about financial literacy or financial planning and all that takes, please be sure to check those out. I think you will get a lot of value out of them. In this episode, we cover a lot of topics and to cover these topics, including whether you know we should buy a car or lease a car, whether we should buy a house or buy a practice first, if we should buy a car under our own name or under a practice name, how to structure the accounting setup of a new dental practice or how to set up your accounting as an associate dentist or versus a practice owner. We cover a lot of topics in this episode and Albert and Craig, who I'm joined with in this interview, share a lot of amazing insight. Tonight's guests are Albert Geigel and Craig Spiegel. Albert is the founder of MW Partners. MW Partners is a specialist accounting firm working exclusively with dentists. Albert has over 30 years of experience in accounting and this really shows in this interview as he shares a lot of amazing insight and adds a lot of value that I think the listeners will enjoy. It may be one that you may need to listen to a couple times or take some notes and if you have other questions regarding the accounting topics that we discuss in this interview, I will include Albert's information in the show notes. Craig Spiegel is the co-founder and head of sales at Credible. Credible is a specialist financial services company providing financial services to dentists. Craig has over 30 years of experience in this space and this really shows in this interview as his insights are truly valuable. This episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast has been proudly supported by specialist medical lender Credible. If you need finance, be it for your personal or professional needs, the team at Credible know the drill. From home loans and car loans to equipment and fit-out loans, or even commercial property and practice purchases, the finance specialist at Credible will provide a tailored solution for you. Learn more at www.credible.com.au, that's C-R-E-D-A-B-L.com.au, where you can learn more and you can live chat with a member of the team 24-7. If you are new to the Newbie Dentist podcast, Thank you for checking out the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please be sure to check out the previous interviews. I've had the privilege of interviewing some amazing guests over the past couple of years. And if you're returning to the Newbie Dentist podcast, thank you for your ongoing support. It means a lot to me. Please be sure if you've got the time to head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. It does really help the show grow and get more exposure. Without further delay, enjoy this interview with Albert Geigel and Craig Spiegel. Welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, giving a voice to young clinicians worldwide. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to be the dental industry leader in in-depth, informative and motivational interviews with some of the world's leading clinicians, academics and experts with your host, Dr. Omid Azami. So I'm joined tonight by Craig Spiegel and Albert Geigel, who work for Credible and MW Partners, respectively. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me tonight. We've got a lot of exciting topics to talk about, and I think a lot of topics that most new grads will find really useful in terms of their financial planning, financial literacy, sequencing, and all those kind of things. So before we really sink into it, if you guys want to take a minute, just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do, and then we'll jump in. So I guess, uh, Albert, if you want to start, and we'll go from there. Okay, thanks, uh, Amid. So my name's Albert Geigel. I'm the principal of MW Partners Specialist Dental Accountants, and that's exactly what we do. 
probably about three or four years ago, we stopped engaging with anyone other than dentists. So you need to be a dentist to come on board here. And that ensures that all six of our specialist uh, accountants here can look after everything that, uh, that you need. We're also part of the Lakeside Group. So we've got financial planning and legal services and other things that we can call on as well, not just tax returns and business activity statements. We also look at structuring, in particular for practice purchases and sales. I do most of the business valuations for practices. So if there's one out there that a dentist is looking at and they want to see whether it's at around the the right price, then we can certainly do a valuation for them. We operate on a fixed fee basis. So we're not on a dollar per hour type uh, rate. So you don't get any unexpected bills. You know exactly what you're up for at the start of the year. And where we're doing a tax return for any dentist, then any of the advisory phone calls that they need in relation to their business or taxation affairs are at no charge. It is included within the preparation of the tax return. So if they do ring up asking about financing a car or you know any other business type question, then if we can provide that over the phone and it's um, quick to remedy, then we do that. We much prefer that dentists aren't afraid to ring up and be followed by you know a $300 bill for talking to Albert for five seconds, then they're, they're getting the right advice at the start because the government now has significant amounts of information on you in real time. So it's very hard to backtrack and fix something up retrospectively. So you're better off getting the advice at the start and then proceed from there. So we're happy to help yeah, dentists right around the country achieve their financial dreams. Excellent. Seems like you guys do a lot there. And Craig, what about yourself? Well, firstly, I wish I'd gone back and studied dentistry. I can't (laughs) deal with Albert now. (laughs) No, so look, I work with Credible. We specialise in financing doctors, dentists and vets. And I'm part of a group that has been doing that for close on 30 years now. We founded and specialised what we call specialist finance for the health professionals So what does that really mean? In boring terms, it's giving money for things like cars, home loans, equipment, buying practices, and so on and so forth. What it really means is using our expertise to actually understand each person's situation and then try and give them the best guidance we can, whether it's funding with our own funds or using another bank. And also, I think, importantly, guiding them to other professionals and experts in the space for things that we don't do. I think that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm really excited. Obviously, we were talking in the pre-interview a little bit about 2020 and all the challenges and things that it proposed for dentists and you know everyone really. For me personally, it was an interesting time because I had a little bit more time than I normally would have. And I really, you know, you realize that you need some cash on hand for like emergencies and things like that that come up. You also learn about personal finance and what I got to do to like, you know, invest and the wealth creation aspect of it. But I think on a more basic level, a lot of us who don't have sort of a personal finance background or accounting background, like doing sciences and doing dentistry, we graduate and there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of doors that sort of open up so you can start buying a lot of things. You can start taking on a lot of debt. But I think what's really exciting about tonight's conversation is trying to lay out a bit of a sort of a blueprint for sort of how you guys would advise young dentists sort of getting these things done and what sequence to do them. So I guess the, the episode title would be sort of like home cars and dental practice. I guess, Craig, if you want to start us off, I'm a new grad. I come to you for advice and I want to, you know, I've been renting during dental school. Now I'm sort of ready to have some cash saved up. I'm, you know, I've been working for a few years, debating a practice, debating buying a house as a you know, first property to move into. How would you sort of guide me in that first discussion? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and one that comes up often, it's the chicken and the egg or the practice of the house. And I guess the reality is a lot of it comes down to timing. You know, if the right practice comes along for you, then you need to move forward with that, whether you've found your home or you haven't managed to find your home. But I think from a funding point of view and the way the world of money works, often it's better to buy your house first and the practice second. And that, without boring your listeners to tears, is about how you service debt. When you're working somewhere, you've got your pay slips and we know what you're earning. As soon as you buy a practice, 
technically you've now got to use the practice financials and you can't use your own. And most lenders want to see at least six to 12 months minimum of performance before they'll even look at a home loan. So that's a good question, but I, I think still I'll go back to it. If you found the right practice, that's what you need to go for. Yeah. Uh, Albert, what do you think on that front? Yeah, look, I'd agree with Craig on exactly the same point. To some extent, it also depends on how driven the dentist is either to live in a certain area or with certain aspirations. I mean, they may already be married. They may already have kids. There could be a number of other circumstances there where they go, now there's a particular area that I want to live in, then most certainly purchase the house first. Other ones are a bit more relaxed, if that's the right way to put it. Uh, they could be perfectly happy in you know, Melbourne, Sydney or Queensland or some, somewhere else. So perhaps renting first is better until they find an area where they're more inclined to purchase a practice. But even then, again, from the financial point of view, the home first, it's where you go after you've had the hard day at, at the office and then look at the practice a bit later on. Yeah. So in terms of like the chicken and egg thing, I think that's an interesting one because as an associate, you know, the dentist is making 150 grand a year for the last three years. So they have that track record of that income coming in, buying the house so they can get the mortgage based on that income versus what you're saying. If you open a practice and you don't have any, especially a scratch practice, you have no income for, you know, X amount of months. Does it hurt you to get a, a practice loan if you have a mortgage already? I'll take this one. So a scratch practice is very different from a going concern or, or buying an existing business. At the end of the day, I think the answer is no, it doesn't hurt you because if you're going to buy a scratch practice, sorry, fund one to start up or buy an existing one, the fundamentals still need to make sense. So if you realise you've just set up a clinic and you've done various cash flows, which I'm sure Albert could help with, and there are various tools available to support, and you realise you're going to be minus 50 grand after four months. In other words, your expenses are greater than your earnings, and that might include your personal debt. As long as you've got a plan to meet that minus, and that could be additional funding or savings, it doesn't matter. And most going concerns should pay their way and some. The only difference is if you're a seriously high producing young dentist, where you're making a lot in at someone else's clinic. And I actually just funded about two or three people like that. They are definitely going to take a hit to earnings because it's very hard to replicate what their production is in buying a newer, smaller clinic. Yeah, it's going to take time to build that up. But that's the opportunity too, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so in terms of interest rates and things right now being lower, would you, would you be more inclined to recommend people like buy a house? sooner rather than later? No, I, look, the interest rates are most likely going to stay low for a, certainly a reasonable period of time. Again, I, I don't think I'd jump into either buying a practice or a house just because interest rates are, are low. So it's the other factors. Both of those are going to be amongst the largest purchases you're going to make in your life. So you're going to have to pay back the principal in any case. So you might as well do it at the time that's suitable for you. And in terms of using your house as a security, so I guess what that would mean is you have an asset there so you can borrow against that asset for the practice. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So most specialist lenders will finance whatever you want and take security over what it is that you're buying. So if you want to buy a car, security over car. If it's a practice, it's the practice. Most major banks will look to take additional security in some respects and, and quite often, but the house normally doesn't form part of that basket. And it is getting harder to use your home to raise business debt. But if you could, you've still got to go through the numbers and say, well, number one, what's the advantage? And let's be honest, it's generally just rate and price, but there are quite a few disadvantages. You know, Once you've used it, you've taken up that equity that you might want for something else and amongst other things. Yeah. But yeah, I think overall, I think the point of the, you know, when you're debating between the house and the practice, the lifestyle component is quite large as uh, Albert said as well, because if you set an anchor and buy a house in a certain area and then the practice is, there's nothing available in that area, that might be a challenge later on to kind of overcome that. Where does sort of other big purchases like a car come into this? 
Because I know obviously it's not an asset in the same way as a practice or your real your real estate or your home would be looked upon. How would the car purchase in terms of timing? When would you recommend that? Uh, I recommend that as soon as you need wheels to get yeah. back and forth <laughs> from, from work and, and stop riding a bicycle. So realistically, it's buying a vehicle that's suitable to your current circumstances. So, I mean, it's nice to have a flashy car, but realistically for dentists, the tax deduction that you get from a motor vehicle is about the worst around Okay, because most of the time you are traveling privately. So home to work or home to the surgery is private travel. So if you're keeping a logbook, it becomes really difficult to get a high logbook percentage so that you can get a good tax deduction. So my advice generally to dentists is buy the motor vehicle that you would like to buy on the basis that you will get zero tax deduction for it. So that means you're buying clearly on, you know, if I really want a BMW brand new, then you're prepared to pay for it. And yeah. don't get don't get sideswiped or looking at, oh, how much tax am I going to get back? So there are areas where we can increase the logbook usage percentage. And that's particularly or runs particularly well with ABN contracting dentists who are traveling to more than one surgery. I mean, that's become more common now where they might work two or three days at one surgery and two or three days at another surgery. And they might need to transport what's known as bulky equipment. (laughs) Now, this ruling was not designed for dentists. It was designed for your tradies and and everything else. So carrying all the tools (laughs) in the back of the ute, but it does work. And there has been a case for dentists where they deemed it was inappropriate to use public transport because they've got what the judge termed dental molds and potentially embarrassing material there so they could use motor vehicle to travel back and forth from the surgery because they're bringing that stuff home at night. I mean, you need proper advice on that, but we can lift the percentage, but still the tax deduction for the motor vehicle is relatively small. And because of the luxury car limits, it cuts out at $59,000. So once you're over $59,000, if you're buying a car for 160,000, you will still only get depreciation based on a $59,000 car. So you'll have the same tax deductions with half the value or twice the cost, whichever way you want to look at it. And while I'm talking of that as well, for the practice owners, it is much better to have the motor vehicle in your personal name than it is to have it in your company or trust that operates the the business. The reason for that is that where the motor vehicle is in a trust or a company, it becomes 100% tax deductible. So everybody goes, yippee, I don't need to keep a logbook. I'm good. 100% tax deduction. That's what I want to hear. The offsetting bit, which is what the accountants will sort of brush over with you is that the motor vehicle is subject to fringe benefits tax. So most surgeries will not pay the fringe fringe benefits tax. They'll pay what's known as an employee contribution or an offset. Now with high value vehicles, sometimes the offset that needs to be paid is more than the tax deduction you're getting. So you may end up paying the tax office for the privilege of driving your own motor vehicle. So usually we put it in because the employee, so to have the car in your personal name means that you will always achieve a tax deduction that's as good as, if not better than a company. So keep it in your personal name. It's a lot easier to manage and run. You can have the expenses. You can put them on a corporate credit card or something. You want to put all the fuel and everything else on there and we can adjust for it. But buy the car, finance it in your own name. That's a great tip because some people may want to upgrade their car and think, okay, when I open my practice, I'll get the car under the practice name. So you're saying the the benefits won't be there to do that. It's better to do so under your own name still. Yep. And do that when you're in a practice. It's it's fine. Awesome. I think the other thing I'd just add to that is uh, it is generally the first thing that people finance a car. You know, you've been through it. I'm sure many of your listeners has. You've you've worked, you've scrimped, you've saved. 
Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to earn money. You deserve to get something nice to drive, especially if you're going out to practices a little more rurally or you're relocating where public transport's not such a, a great thing. And I think Albert did mention something about a flashy car, but then buy the one you want. I'm not sure that's congruous, Albert, but uh, <laughs> I, I think if you're conservative, you'll spend a modest amount initially, get yourself established and focus on your priorities. Yeah which might be your first property and or a practice. The, the only other consideration, I think, when it comes to financing a car is going to be the term of finance. What does your repayment look like, et cetera? And the relevance of that is when it comes to that home loan conversation that we've already had, you've got to determine what can someone afford to service or what yeah. can they afford to borrow for a home. And if your car loan repayment is $1,000 a month, because you just want to pay it off quickly, and that's great, versus, say, 500 which is a more modest repayment, that monthly differential will impact the amount you can borrow for a home loan. So the lower your repayment, the more you could borrow for your house, which might be your priority. And we work through that and, and like to see what is it that people aspire to rather than just what have they come to us for, we think that actually does better serve the person and, and gets a better outcome long term. Sure. I guess the, the last sort of more technical thing I'll get into before we sort of just have some just random questions that I have towards the end is when you're ready to set up your practice in terms of the structure of the accounting side of it, whether it's, you know, you're going to do like just under, under like a head company or you're going to do a, like a trust, what's like a standard sort of structure you would have for a practice owner that you recommend to them in terms of setting it up? Okay. Like Albert, this one would be your domain yeah. more. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, look, predominantly for a dentist setting up or buying a, a practice, the optimum structure will be what's known as a family trust or a discretionary family trust. So a trust operates similar to a company, but what it means is that, that at the end of the year, all of the profits are distributed out to the dentist and all people who are associated with the dentist. So the profit can get shared around to people who may be on a lower tax rate than what the principal dentist is. The reason that we don't use companies and companies probably have been out of favour for 15 to 20 years. Yeah. So normally if I see a dental practice that's in a company, it's a much older practice and they're now seeking to sell and get out of the, the practice. The reason we don't use it is there's a lot more corporate rules around the company. Yeah. People used to use it because of the um, lower tax rate, which is, which is obvious. But companies don't get the 50% capital gains tax exemption that trusts and individuals do. So when you do come at the end of your career to sell your dental practice, if it's run through a company, you'll unfortunately not get that 50% capital gains tax exemption. So that can be a big whack at yeah. the end of the year. The other thing is, is that the profits that are in the company can only come out in one of two ways, either a salary or wage or something to the business owner or as a dividend on the shares. Now, you can answer this one for me. Who do you think is holding the shares in that company that's operating the dental practice? It'd be like the family members of the dentist or? No, oh, that'd usually Just be the dentist. Yeah. Maybe the dentist and their spouse are owning yeah. the, the shares. So that gives us no flexibility at all. We must distribute the dividends 50-50 between the two shareholders or however the number are. Yeah. If we are sharing them amongst the larger family, brother, sister, parents, grandparents or anything mm -hmm. like that, and they're having a holding, that holding is fixed. So if one gets the dividend, all the other ones are going to get the same sort of dividend. So you lose the flexibility and you lose flexibility because we know the tax laws will change. And to have that flexibility is really important. We can achieve the same low tax rate result in a trust because the, the trust deeds that we set up allow for not only distribution to family members, but to any company or trust 
that is associated with the dentist or their family. So we can set up what's known as a bucket company for the dentist that they own solely, and we can distribute some of the profits at 27.5% tax rate to that actual company. So the trust just gives you a whole lot more flexibility and does give you exactly the same benefits when set up in a structure to get a lower corporate tax rate and maintain all the flexibilities and the corporate protection that also goes with having a company there. With a trust, you need to have a trustee. A trustee is the person who's looking after the the running of the trust and is responsible if anything goes wrong. So they're liable. So what we do instead of the individual dentist being the trustee, we actually put a company in its place and that protects the dentist and that also makes for much smoother operation of the trust. So essentially you have a trustee company, a trust, and all of a sudden you've got a bucket company, might have a self-managed super fund. If you're buying the property that the surgery is at, you would probably then have another trust and all of a sudden a corporate empire is born. Yeah, it's quite complex, isn't it? It's nice when you would be good in a visual domain to have like a, the mind map of that kind of laid out to see how it all works out. In terms of this structure, then, is there an SFA that then just like gets paid as a contractor within the practice or how is that set up? The SFA is a separate issue to, to a certain extent. So from a contracting dentist point of view, so we're not talking about a practice owner, from a contracting dentist point of view, they're able to work under two scenarios. They can work for a normal, let's call it 40% commission after labs, which is fairly common. Under that circumstance, the dentist works, let's say they generate uh, $11,000 during the the week or the month. We'll deduct labs, thousand bucks. So we get down to 10 grand. The dentist technically then should be issuing an invoice to the surgery going generated, you know, 11 grand, less the labs, 10, you owe me $4,000. They would charge GST on top. So now you owe me $4,400 and the lab, uh, sorry, the lab, the surgery would pay that and that would go into the dentist's pocket. Under a service and facility agreement, the dentist is no longer charging the surgery. They are renting a chair and effectively running their own mini business. So for the same circumstances, they generate $11,000 there's a thousand dollars in labs and the eleven. Uh, sorry, the one thousand. Sorry, there's one thousand dollars in labs. The surgery hangs on to the one thousand dollars and transfers ten thousand dollars to the dentist's bank account. So the dentist is going, "You beauty, I've got ten grand instead of instead of four. This yeah. is fantastic." But now the surgery is going to charge a service fee. And you guessed it, it'll be 60%. So they're going to charge them $6,000. They're going to put GST on top. So that's $6,600. So the dentist has now got to give that back to the surgery and they'll be left with $3,400 in their pocket. So now they're feeling significantly worse off because they did have $4,400. Now they've got $3,400. But when they do their business activity statement, because they've paid $600 in GST, they're able to get that refunded. So when they get the $600 refund plus the $3,400, they're back to their $4,000. Yeah. And obviously on the original method, they have to pay that $400 that they'd received. So they're back on the net 4000 Most of the surgeries, certainly all the corporates and everything else, all work on these SFAs and they never give the dentist ten thousand dollars. Yeah, they always go. We they give a bit of paper that says we owe you ten, you owe us six six. Here's your three thousand four hundred, yeah. and that's it. And then the dentists are all confused because they're going got this much and they withheld GST mm-hmm. or whatever. If you understand sort of how it works, it's quite good. We spend some time with the contracting dentists to explain it help them with their business activity statement because they can be working at one place that uses an SFA and another place that, that, that. that doesn't. And all of a sudden, if you're sending it to, I'll go, I was going to say a normal accountant, but an accountant that doesn't specialize in the area, they're just looking at the dollars coming in. And quite frankly, 
for most accountants, they know that dental services are GST free. And so their normal presumption would be that what's being generated is GST free income, which is not correct because the transaction that's GST free is the one between the patient and the surgery. So the patient's not paying GST, it's on the subsequent transactions between the surgery and the contracting dentist that has the GST applicable to it. Yeah. I like it when they withhold the GST. It's like an indirect saving account in a way. Like you just get them, you get a lump sum at the end of each quarter and like, oh, nice. That's a nice, nice little cash inject. So in terms of the, the principal dentist though, for liability purposes, how is that set up in terms of how the practice pays the principal dentist? Okay. So that can vary. The uh, situation is where you've got a sole trader type. So he's not employing any other dentists. It's a small practice to start with. Hopefully you'll build up and he'll be able to put a contracting dentist in or a hygienist, et cetera. Then essentially the corporate structure that's around him isn't going to enable him to save a lot of tax because the tax office looks at it and says, the income that's being generated is from this person's, what they call personal services income. Mm-hmm. So it's income generated from their sweat and labor and everything else. And it's not coming from the business structure itself. So the tax office view is you're just hiding the income in through a corporate structure and we'll allow you to do that, but we won't allow you to distribute to family or to withhold money in the company at a lower tax rate. So what we need to do with that principal dentist or the owner is treat them like we would any other contracting dentist. So what we would do is the income that's generated by the practice would technically be going into a holding account and technically would go over to the principal dentist who would then pay a 60% service fee to his own trust. Mm -hmm. So the only income we see in the trust is the 60% service fee. We don't see the patient fees at all. That's all sitting off to the side with the principal dentist. So at a minimum, the principal dentist's tax return is going to show their 40% labor component. And on the trust side, we're going to see the true profit of the business because the 60% is going to pay the, the wages and the rent and everything else. And whatever's left over is then considered to be business income and can be distributed to other to other family members. And this is the bit where someone like uh, Craig or going to a, a specialist bank like Credible understand how those structures work so they can see what the real picture is behind practice so they can facilitate a loan for the for the business yeah i think accounting is a challenging area to make sort of entertaining it sounds a bit dry but i think the value is there for sure and i think i hope that people listening if they don't obviously immediately understand it definitely reach out to try and get some more insight around these areas and try and sort of understand the structure how it works and obviously, the smarter you are with the tax code and the more tax deductions and things you can kind of figure out to do, then the better off you'll be. Craig, I'm, I'm curious, sort of, we've gone through some of the technical stuff. So I just want a bit more, just, you know, some advice piece from both of you guys around some of these topics. It's funny because I, I talked to some of my friends and obviously there's a, there's a wide spectrum of types of dentists. Some of us are a bit more sort of long-term minded and we're, you know, saving up for retirement. We're building up assets. We're investing. And then we have our friends who like to have a bit more fun and they are buying the flashy cars and the nice watches and whatnot. I'm curious from a lender perspective, if I approach you like, listen, I want to buy a practice. I've been working for a few years. What are some of the things that you look at to sort of decide if this is a viable, I guess, risk for you to lend money to or not? A question. Firstly, Albert, just on tax and cars, guys, if you could also make sure you drive past the dental lab yeah. between <laughs> clinics, that might also allow you to get your logbook up a little bit. And, and stop for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, correct. So work backwards. So I want deductions. How do I find them? <laughs> Not can I get a deduction? So there's number one. Look, I, I guess, you know, it's got to make sense. That's the one. So if you're looking to set up a practice, buy a practice, and I say to you, why is that the right practice for you? And your best answer is the coffee shops are great around <laughs> the corner. Well, that's lovely. And I think that's a lovely advantage or plus. Yeah. And it might show the sort of demographic in the area is a good demographic. It's probably not the best response, mm-hmm. you know. So usually the numbers do stack up or make sense. 
because you're buying a clinic at a certain value, uh, it's got a certain profit, and there's a certain cash outflow for that those loan repayments. And that normally makes sense. I think it's looking at the non-financial aspects, which are most critical, and we can bring most insight. So an example, you know, when you ask why that clinic, do you have any complementary skills that you can bring to it? Mm -hmm. Are you doing oral surgery? Are you doing ortho? Anything that would normally be referred out, if that's something that you can do and you've got a competency and you know it's being referred out, well, there's an immediate value add that you can bring to it, which means retaining turnover or gross. And actually, that might be the perfect value add clinic for you early on. It could just be there's the right fit or you've worked in a clinic for five years or 10 years. And to, to be honest, you know, if you think you're overpaying for a practice because you're the one that's produced half the turnover and therefore, why am I paying for my own personal <laughs> exertion, which by the way, you're not, yeah. that dentist owns that practice and it's their goodwill and you got paid to produce it along the way. In my opinion, and it's, it is sometimes my money, but ultimately, I hopefully I get it back. Like pay the extra 50 grand if you think that's the overvalue piece. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I say to some of your peers, don't worry about it. Go find a clinic somewhere where no one knows you. You've never worked. You've got no experience. You've got no goodwill that you've developed and save your 50 grand. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it makes no sense. It's a total de-risking of the exercise. I think the one thing that people have got to be a little bit more mindful of these days as compared to buying a clinic five or 10 years ago is that things will take a bit longer. Yeah. to actually get to where you might have hoped. You know, break-even might have been in the good old days when I was young, you know, like 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Now I think plan for 24 to 36. Yeah. And if it's still 18 months, brilliant. But if it's 36 and you haven't planned for it, then actually you might find yourself in a little bit of a, an uncomfortable position. And, and the other thing I'll add just off the back of what Albert was discussing is that in terms of structures, from a funding point of view, we don't really care. Yeah. If you wanted a company or a trust or a company and a trust and an individual and a whatever else, that's okay. Get your advice, set yourself up the way you need to be set up. We're interested in who we're lending to, which ultimately is going to be the dentist. Sure. And in terms of obviously success stories are always great to hear from. I'm curious if you have any sort of, obviously not naming names and things, but any like bad cases of people opening a practice where they maybe shouldn't have or doing, choosing, to, choosing to do a startup versus buying an established practice already. Because I think you know, a lot can be learned from other people's mistakes as well. So if you have any sort of, either of you, if you have any sort of stories or anything that you can share along that front, that'd be great. Look, I might jump in. Albert, you spoke for a lot already, but you can take it over afterwards. <laughs> so, look, we're obviously we're obviously at the front end of this, right? Because yeah. the first time we know the dentist is having problems when they're not paying me. Yeah. Now, fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. And and it is interesting. Most, like, let's let's be honest, okay? Not everyone should run a business. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's good at hiring and firing. Not everyone is good at managing conflict well. And so not everyone should own a business. So I think if you're looking to own a business, you have to be honest with yourself first. And the clinics that have failed, in my experience, are generally where the dentist has a couple of characteristics. Number one, they actually should just be employed and they might be brilliant clinicians, but they aren't good leaders. Yeah. And they don't want to be mean to people or unkind and that generally doesn't work well Mm -hmm. okay and number two people that uh, are looking at everyone else as to why things aren't working out you know there was a a couple of dentists where they were struggling and I went into the clinic and one for example did endodontics but charged a third of what an endo charges and I asked why I said your patients love you they know you they trust you if you're not comfortable charging what a specialist charges then don't Mm-hmm. Uh, but why a third? What about two thirds, for example? And so here was someone who just didn't quite get it or didn't feel right. And more importantly, they weren't prepared to make the changes yeah. necessary. And another one where they were spreading effectively two busy days across five and they couldn't 
get their head around like just being open for two, booking their patients in for two. And, and most patients don't expect to be seen the day they ring. And technology is lovely. You don't have to be there to get calls and all these other things. And they didn't take it upon themselves to consider that as an option and go work somewhere else for two days a week mm-hmm. to at least supplement their earnings, to pay their way so they could sleep better at night and then build up their practice slightly over time. So... Look, the fact is most dentists, if they graft away long enough, will probably, let's call it inverted commas, be successful. In other words, make money for themselves and give them a lifestyle they want. But those are the tougher, it's a personality thing. It's not, for sure. I don't think it's a skill-based issue. (laughs) You know, hopefully you've all done well at uni and they didn't let you get the qualification if you hadn't. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Albert, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, look, I just say I agree exactly with uh, with with Craig, and there's certainly a whole raft of different scenarios that um, flick up occasional warning signs that you know maybe this is not the the good idea. But quite frankly, the one that I see, but I'm seeing less of, is the startup from scratch, mm-hmm. uh, because it is really difficult to come from a zero base and build up a practice because you don't need to be a good dentist. You need to be a brilliant marketer to get people in because the only way you're getting a patient today is to pinch one off another dentist. They've got to come (laughs) to you. Much easier even buying a rundown practice with a couple of hundred thousand in patient fees gives you an opportunity to see those patients, for them to like what you're doing Mm -hmm. and then to ask them, is there someone else in their family that they can also help? And that's how to to build up the the patient base. The other area that I see that's potential common mistake is I'll go into practice with my mate and that'll halve the risk, but it triples the bloody complexity of everything that's going on. And there's not enough work for the two of you. So (laughs) it's far better to be doing, if you're going to be a practice owner, then be a practice owner, unless it's going to be a really huge practice that you're buying and you're going to go in with with someone else. Again, I would almost warn against it and say, if this is your first practice, don't go that big. Just go with something, earn your way to that position. So, yep, that's about it on my side. (laughs) I'm laughing because a few years ago, I went down that rabbit hole though with a couple of friends of mine and we actually met up with Craig and we're like, you know, this makes sense because then we can all work part-time as well and we can share the overhead and all these sort of things. But um, in hindsight, I guess it worked out quite well because it would have been rolling in just like the start of 2020 and just would have been like not a great time to do that. So (laughs) I think it's, it's always interesting to get these lessons from you guys as well. And in terms of the practice ownership side, do you find you're seeing less younger dentists opening practices as just what you saw maybe 10 years ago or more dentists just more comfortable staying associates versus opening a practice or buying a practice or is that not changed that trend too up too much i i don't know that there are any genuine statistics that would yeah. actually bear out a response one way or the other yeah you know from personal experience there's no shortage of people looking to buy clinics mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the first step actually in that process is determining that you want to be a business owner or you want to be your own boss yeah. and or you've got a belief of how things should be done or the way you'd like it to be done. So that's the first decision you make. And then the next one is, can I achieve that by buying something that exists or do I have to start from scratch? From scratch yeah. So I don't, I don't think there's any change in aspirations of ownership. Mm-hmm. But between those two, I think it does come down to your confidence, uh, your competency, because let's let's to be fair, you could buy a clinic that's going now and you'd need to loan it for 800 grand or 700 grand, mm-hmm. but you could start one for three, 50, 400. Mm-hmm. Um, both have their risks, but it's which one are you more comfortable to take? Yeah. You know, you don't inherit problems if you're buying, if you start from scratch, but then you also have no patient. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough call for sure. I think it depends how how much you want it to be like customized to what you want or where you want it to be. Uh, But I definitely see the value of the cash flow and the goodwill of the practice to like have that 
uh, as a starting point is definitely nice to to have versus uh, what Albert was saying in terms of the marketing side of things. If you're opening a scratch practice now to get patients in, you'd be happy with like 20 patients a month at this point, I think, <laughs> like uh, with what I hear from like friends and things like that. So it's very slow build for sure. Yeah, I, d- I did some rough numbers. I think you've got to gross like 400,000 in U1 mm-hmm. on average just to cover all your costs. Yeah. And I'm not even sure you've taken much of a wage yourself yeah. for that production. So it is definitely one where you've got to have deep pockets or someone that can help you fund that and, and have a two to three year view. Yeah, I'd agree with that, around that 400,000 mark um, to, to come out, um, cover, cover expenses and have a few dollars left over for yourself. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like I actually know what I'm talking about. It's great. <laughs> After 30 years, you think I should figure it out by now, right? <laughs> Excellent. So I guess just to summarize a few of the points, you know, we talked about the new grad, you know, deciding between, you know, house or practice, but there's some good advice there. Obviously there's one, if the practice opportunity is too good, don't think you have to follow some formula, just buy the practice and then you can worry about the house second. And Albert had the point of the lifestyle component of, you know, if you buy a practice, then you're kind of stuck to that area. Or if you buy a house, you might be sort of stuck to that area. So sort of decide how important where you want to live is in terms of your lifestyle factor before you decide to get into the practice. In terms of the cars, I think that's great advice. And I think, you know, buy what you can afford. Don't rely on deductions and those sort of things to to make up the cost of the the vehicle. We talked a little bit about business structure and all those sort of uh, the complex sort of mind map that goes with that, which uh, we have some people reaching out to you hopefully and trying to get some more advice around that. Is there any topics that we didn't touch on that you guys, while you're here, think it'd be important to touch on before you wrap up? I think from my point of view, I think we've touched on a lot of things and there could probably be a whole nother yeah. topic on, on each of these components. For but sure. I, I think your summary was great. The other thing that I will throw into the mix for consideration is that I've had many clients over the years that have gone and bought clinics or set up clinics rurally yeah. where they felt there was a greater advantage and ability to earn and I think get a lot more interesting dentistry out, out of the CBD. And then when had their children that, let's say, are of high school age have looked to come then back to the city or to an area where they felt the education would serve their family as well. So you also can think a little bit outside the square. Yeah. And that's been really, really successful for quite a few clients that I've supported over the years. Yeah, I love that one. That's one that definitely me and my wife have like, for that idea run because it's one of the unique jobs like dentistry and healthcare in general where you don't have to be in this like you actually probably make more money if you don't live in the city a lot of other professionals have to be sort of in the cbd areas around commerce and business and those sort of things to to have that income but where the kind of the more remote you go the less competition and the more the busier you are and the more you produce which is pretty cool what about yourself albert anything that you'd like to touch on before we wrap up no look i think we've gone over most of the issues that come up for younger dentists looking towards their future. So I, I think that's about <laughs> enough information for one <laughs> night. And I could, I could see your mind was turning over when you thought, oh, am I going to mention the word trust or thing? I'll just go with structures. <laughs> structures is a good word to cover off on, on everything. And yes, look, we're more than happy to take a call or an email from anyone at any time and run through, even if they're not quite yet ready to, to buy a, a practice. And Craig will support me in in this too. If you are looking to buy a practice and you are looking around, it's important to get your team together. So get an accountant that knows what they're doing. Have the financier know, you know, what you might be looking at, whether that's something that would be affordable uh, for you. Have a preferably a dental specialist lawyer, not your mate who only does divorces or someone else that's been referred. Someone that knows. <laughs> what to look for in a in a contract and at least you don't have to have done much but at least introduced yourself and they know a little bit about you to to start with you know I often find particularly where people are, are ringing up and I've just seen a practice and I'd really like to go and, and and buy it and everything else they haven't had last year's tax return done you know invariably you may need a a reference letter or something like that from your accountant to get the lease transferred over into your name and a whole lot of other things. So get that team all built beforehand and then you'll be in a much better position to get the practice that you really want. 
Yeah, that's excellent advice. And something that we covered in some of the other interviews I've done earlier for the same series in terms of the value of like a specialist service uh, versus just going to like, a, you know, going to a bank for a loan or going to like a generic construction company for a fit out of a practice. And there's really value in the experience that, you know, you guys have being specialists with healthcare professionals, with dentists. So people should really not try and shop around on price all the time necessarily, but really value the experience and the expertise of that. So thank you guys so much for coming on. There's a lot of wealth of information that was shared quite dense. So it might be something that you guys got to listen to a couple of times to get all the information there, but you, both of your details I'll put in the show notes. So if anyone's interested, you can definitely find Albert and Craig's details in the show notes. So you can definitely reach out to them for more information. If you have anything else last minute, or should we wrap it up? I'd like to say one thing. Sure. It's going to sound very corny, but to Albert's point, we actually love working with people right from the beginning. Yeah. It's so much actually more enjoyable and rewarding to actually help someone right from the beginning and work through their life and their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for anyone who has an aspiration for ownership or they're just trying to work out whether it's right for them or not, the more experts they speak to, the more it should help crystallize their thinking one way or the other. Your example might be a good one or a bad one, I don't know. (laughs) But certainly we do try and provoke thought and for someone to really think about it because it's the intangibles that will ultimately make a significant difference to success. Thanks for the opportunity. No, it was awesome. Thank you guys for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbiedentist.com. Have a great day.